Welcome to Joint Effort with Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. This podcast covers the pain and injuries that are associated with muscles, ligaments, and joints. Welcome to another episode of Joint Effort. It's uh, your host, Jason Sullivan, here with Monica Hoffman, a sleep expert uh, doctor, uh, to discuss uh, the benefits and negatives of a good and bad night of sleep. Thanks for coming on, Monica. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. You got it. Um, so I understand your, your specialty is essentially sleep medicine. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Okay. Give me a little background. Where, where, did you, where did you come? Where did you grow up? And how did you meander down the path of finding out sleep medicine, which is kind of an exploding uh, field of medicine right now? Yeah, it is. I'm a little biased, but it does affect everything else. So um, I grew up in Minnesota okay. and uh, went to medical school at the University of Minnesota. The Army paid for me to go to med school. So I've kind of been all around the country for a while. After that, um, I originally trained in internal medicine at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. Um, and then after that, I did a one-year sleep medicine fellowship out at Walter Reed Army Medical oh, Center. Wow. So work with the military. Yeah. That's, yep. that's, that's fantastic. And what, what did your fellowship, uh, what, what was the breadth of the fellow? I mean, you must have seen all sorts of crazy things in the sleep world. Sure. Yep. And the biggest thing that we see is still sleep apnea. That's probably about at least 80% of, of what we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fellowship, also saw a lot of uh, insomnia. It's probably the next most common thing, difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep. Um, there's also some really weird stuff that goes on in your sleep called parasomnias, where people are getting up and doing things that they're not aware of um, okay. when they're sleeping. And those are kind of the probably the three main things that we take care of some narcolepsy as well where people are extra sleepy during the day um, because of deficiencies of some chemicals in their brain yeah and you've just recently started here at the Iowa Clinic as of was it April you're telling me or yeah exactly okay yeah. awesome and practice going going well so far yeah it's going great it's very very busy uh, seen a lot of uh, variety of things mostly sleep apnea but a lot of other really interesting things as well and uh, been able to, to work with a lot of great providers over there. That's awesome. That's a good problem to have starting out busy. Sure. Yep. <laughs> Obviously, there's a need for you. So, yeah. um, all right, let's get into it. So, you know, it, most people hear about sleep and they think boring. And, you know, you, you're in, in college, you're, all your friends say oh, you can sleep when, you, when, you, when you're dead or, yep. st- you know, crazy <laughs> stuff like that. Right. But yeah. I think we understand that to live a full, healthy life, sleep is probably one of the most important things you can do, uh, do well at least. Sure, yep, and sleep is always kind of the first thing to go when you're busy and there's other things going on. Um, Everyone's like, yep, I can sleep a little bit less, I can stay up later, I can get up early and get this done. Um, And in the short term, uh, people are able to do that with fewer effects, bad effects, but if it, you know, happens over the long term, um, not sleeping enough um, can cause a lot of problems. Tell me a little bit about, you know, sleep, uh, in its basic, you know, stages and kind of characterize it for me. What What is sleep to you? Sure. Um, so it's uh, kind of a, a different state of awareness. Uh, you're less, a little bit less aware of the environment that's going around. The consciousness is different. The way that we measure it in sleep medicine is mostly by looking at brain waves, uh, doing an EEG. Um, and there are various stages of sleep that happen and uh, people go through different stages throughout the night start out usually in a lighter stage of sleep uh, it's called non-REM stage one um, sometimes people don't even quite realize they've fallen asleep when that happens if you're really drowsy is that what like when if someone yeah. wakes you up really quickly and they say hey you're snoring that you're like well yeah, I wasn't even asleep yeah so exactly. that's, that's NREM one yep usually okay. yeah yeah 
Um, and then from there, uh, go into stage two sleep, which is a little bit deeper, uh, more restorative sleep. And then usually next into stage and REM three sleep, which is a very deep stage of sleep. The younger you are, the more of that sleep that you have. It's more physically restorative. Are you paralyzed during that sleep? When, um, are you, when are you paralyzed during sleep? You should be paralyzed during almost all sleep. You when you're be. moving around, it's more of an arousal where your brain wakes up for a minute. You move around, get comfortable, okay. go right back to sleep. When you wake up for less than 30 seconds or so, a lot of times you won't remember that. and You'll just have moved around and yeah. go back to sleep. Yeah, okay. So then from NREM3, then you go into... Is there um, four, or do you go into REM sleep? Nope, it's REM there? sleep. REM sleep. Yeah. Okay. And that's where you dream typically? Most of the time, yeah. Okay. And now, that's is it common for people to have multiple cycles of that throughout the night, like two or three or four, or does everyone have the same amount, or how does that work? Oh, sure. Good question. And it is. That's, you're exactly right. You have multiple cycles of that throughout the night, um, You know, usually between three and four uh, most of the time. It starts around an hour and a half after you fall asleep in most cases. Um, and that's when you're the most paralyzed. Okay. Uh, really, the only muscles that are working are the muscles that move your eyes and that, uh, the main muscles of breathing. Okay. So if we were in a dark room and there's no light to wake us and there's no alarm clock, when would the human being wake up? At what part of the cycle would they actually wake up and feel rested? Most people need about seven to nine hours of sleep per night. Okay. Uh, we all also have a circadian rhythm um, that's very much affected by light, but if you put a whole bunch of people in a cave and let them go for a few days to see kind of how long that cycle is. It's actually just a little over 24 hours. Um, okay. So it's much easier to stay up late and sleep in than it is to get up early for most people. That's why, okay, that's why getting up early, no one, yep. no one loves getting up early. Yep, most people don't. So. Okay, all right. So that when someone tells you, hey, I, I only need five and a half hours of sleep, if they tell you that, and they're they're clicking along fine. They look healthy. I mean, is that believable, or is there are they is there something that they're missing out on, you know, that could get them in the long run? Like there's some, there's seemingly some some convincing evidence that maybe Alzheimer's may be a higher risk of sure. not sleeping, uh, cardiovascular disease, and things like yep. that. Is that is that accurate, or are some are some people able to get away with just five and a half hours? Um, it's kind of like a bell curve of sleep. Uh, so if you look at it, there's a very very small percentage of people who are at one end and who only really only need four hours of sleep per night. Okay. Less than 1% of people will fall over there. And then there's some people on the other end who really need 12 hours of sleep per night. Same thing, like less than 1%. Most people will need seven to eight. Mm -hmm. So if you see somebody who says, yep, I, I get by in five and a half, six hours of sleep per night, most of the time they're doing something to help themselves stay awake, drinking some coffee, or they're at least a little bit sleepy, but there are some small percentage of people out there okay. who are super amazing and can run on four hours Just like sleep incredible Olympic athletes, maybe some yep. people are Olympic sleepers and they just... Exactly, okay. yeah. Is there a difference in your mind between you know quality and quantity of sleep or do they go hand in hand? I mean, can you get really good five or six hours of sleep versus poor you know, nine to 10 hours and is there a preference yep. towards one or the um, other? That does make a little bit of a difference. Um, I don't know if there's a huge preference. I think the preference would be to get that good, you know, seven to nine hours, because even if you're not feeling like that's a perfect night of sleep, at least it gives your body the opportunity to get the sleep it needs. And we're pretty good at regulating what type we need and at catching up uh, when we've been sleep deprived and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So uh, ultimately, if you, let's say, you know, like in med school back in the day, you're studying for a test and you cut short like three or four or five days in a row. 
could leading up to that, can you bank hours of sleep where they'll help you? Or, so, or can yeah. you catch up by sleeping more afterwards? Or is it just kind of a one, one time event? And if you lost it, you lost it forever. And yep. how does that work? Uh, you can for sure catch up afterwards. Uh, sleep stages actually change a little bit when we're catching up uh, to get that good quality sleep in. Mm -hmm. uh, the banking is a little more controversial. Uh, some people think you can do a little bit of that, uh, but I think in general that's more of people who were originally sleep deprived trying to concentrate on banking sleep and actually catching up for that previous sleep deprivation. Got it. So you're not, you don't buy, it sounds like you don't buy the whole like, hey, I, I slept 10 hours or leading up to a day where I'm going to pull an all-nighter. That's not really going to help you too much. I, I don't think that it does. No. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. And the, I'm guessing those all-nighters we all pulled in med school are, were, were, were not a good thing. Uh, probably not. Okay. Um, I think if you actually look at it, the cognitive performance is a lot worse if you don't get probably at least six hours of sleep mm -hmm. the night before. Um, on one night, might not notice quite as much difference, but if you do that night after night after night, there's definitely studies that'll show that um, cognitive performance and even just like speed of how fast you do things and definitely judgment gets a lot worse. Um, if you go an entire night without sleep like and then work the next day, um, and try to drive, it can be the equivalent of, of driving drunk almost with the, the judgment that you have and yeah. the reaction time. That's crazy. And and, and someone was telling, I, thought, I forgot where I was hearing this, but driving sleep deprived is actually more dangerous than driving drunk because you essentially fall asleep at the wheel and you're going 70 miles an hour versus your reactions being a little bit slower. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's a pretty dangerous thing to drive yeah, home. It's, it's definitely a dangerous thing. I don't know if you can make like the direct comparison, but it takes about four seconds of falling asleep at highway speeds to get completely off the road. Mm -hmm. And that's a short enough time that if you're really sleep deprived and you're just going into that stage one sleep, a little drowsy, not even realizing you're asleep, yeah. it can be very dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's get into something of interest to me in terms of, you know, being an orthopedist and how sleep overall affects the field of orthopedics and, and maybe even sports performance. So is there anything that you know of that you can directly compare? Are there any studies that kind of look at athletic performance related to quality of sleep? Or is that too general of even a question? Is it just a yes, it, it matters and it helps quality? You know, I think it really, it definitely really does matter. And there are some studies out there that have looked at that. The hard part is none of them are great studies. It's smaller groups of people. There's a little bit of stuff that people try to do with mice and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, uh, when you look at sleep deprivation or not good quality of sleep, um, it'll impair athletic performance, uh, both by the fact that the muscles don't have you know, quite as much energy as they would normally make during sleep, not as recovered. Um, and then things like accuracy, they looked at like tennis serves. Um, mm -hmm. This is in more professional athletes. Yeah. Uh, the accuracy of the serve goes down if they're not getting a good quality night's sleep or if they get less than five hours of sleep. Um, other things that happen, they look at like football teams who've had to go to the opposite sides of the country. Um, and if they're off that circadian rhythm, they tend to lose more often than not. No kidding. Yeah. Um, so that's why, that's probably why, you know, the away team, maybe it's not so much, maybe the crowd matters, but maybe it's the traveling three time zones that people are overlooking to be a bigger deal. Sure, it's at least a component you know, of it, or I something think, for to sure. consider. Yeah. Um, so, so ultimately, if you had to, you know, which night of sleep leading up to a test or uh, an athletic pursuit 
matters the least. I mean, is it like the night before, everyone has with anxiety of things, right? You yeah. tend to sleep poorly. So like, are you totally, is it is it worthless even showing up? Or if you've, if you've logged five straight good nights of sleep and you don't sleep the night before something, are you still okay? Uh, do you know like what I'm trying to ask? Is it day two or three before an event that matters more than the night hmm. before? Or has that ever been studied? You know, that's a good question. I didn't, I haven't seen anything about that yeah. in particular being studied. Um, theoretically, the studies they did do really looked at the, the, you know, the day or two after uh, sleep deprivation. So it's a pretty recent effect, and you can see the effects after just one night, and they get worse the, the poorer the nights of sleep that you have. Um, and that gets back to a little bit, I guess, of that banking sleep, where if you have enough sleep and good quality beforehand, not over banking like you can't get too much but mm -hmm. if you get if you have at least enough it may mitigate those effects sure. a little bit yeah absolutely so how about in regards to recovering from surgery um clearly there's an insult to the body there's an incision to heal there's a wound yeah. to heal sometimes we're putting grafts and things for orthopedic surgery we're trying to get cartilage to repair um any evidence as to you know how to treat uh, perisurgical patients, uh, because that's always something they complain about to me is like, hey, I can't sleep after surgery. Yep. I can't sleep in a sling. I can't. And so we're always trying to figure out, like, how do we make this better for them? Yeah. And I don't think prescribing hydrocodone is a great solution. And it's hard to tell them that when they usually say, hey, this is the only thing I can do to get to sleep sometimes, you know. So how, how would are there any strategies there or there, is there any evidence that it's really important? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, and physical discomfort does definitely make it hard to sleep, but getting natural sleep or at least as much as you can is still better than any kind of like augmented sleep. Hydrocodone uh, or any opioid pain medication uh, can disrupt breathing during sleep. Uh, the sleep that you do get is not going to be as good of a quality normal sleep as you would get uh, without taking the hydrocodone. So although you might not have as much pain that sleep component isn't going to be what it normally Will it actually be. affect your NREM and your REM like cycles? Um, I don't know if it specifically affects the the staging, um, but it does. But just the way you breathe in general. Yep, the way you breathe in general and the amount of muscle relaxation you get, um, it's it's gonna change that enough uh, that the quality's not gonna be yeah. as, good as, as good as it normally would be. One thing that's been looked at that does seem to help quite a bit is something like melatonin. Uh, that's more of a natural chemical that's already in your body. Um, and it can help patients sleep a lot better and have a normal sleep cycle recovering from surgery or even just on a daily, nightly mm -hmm. basis. And that melatonin will help with induction of sleep, essentially? Is that's that the biggest thing, yep. <clears throat> get it started and then from there the body typically sure. yep. takes it where it yeah. needs to go. Okay, so melatonin is a, a relatively safe sleep aid then. Yep. We're, we're not, uh, you know, we haven't started prescribing that for patients, but I've always wondered if if there was ever some medical recommendation that would come out for post-surgical patients that was, you know, something better than an, an opioid, you know. Oh, so, sure. I think so. that'd be a good thing to try. Um, and if someone could do more research on it, that may definitely be helpful as well. Um, but it's it's so such an easy thing to give the patients and so safe that I think it's definitely would be helpful. Yeah. Um, in terms of... Uh, uh, ultimately like sleep apnea so we have a lot of patients that need a preoperative physical and stuff and then they come back with hey this patient needs a sleep study before they go to surgery can you explain the reason that might be necessary sure. 
Yep, and there's a lot of research behind if you have sleep apnea and it's not treated, the outcomes of surgery are gonna be worse. Um, so what sleep apnea is, is uh, instead of an open air passage from your nose and your mouth down into your lungs, if you have sleep apnea, when you fall asleep, that air passage collapses on itself and not enough air is getting in or out and that can cause oxygen levels to drop. And that drop in oxygen levels is gonna make, uh, make it harder for your body to recover from surgery or from any type of injury. So treating sleep apnea is, is definitely important. Uh, we mostly get a lot of bariatric surgery patients, but also for some ortho surgeries as well uh, to look for sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. um, it's the only way to tell if you have it is really just to do a sleep study. Will, will patients with sleep apnea, will they know, like will, will they not sleep as well or will they sleep relatively normal but just feel not rested in the morning? Yep. And it's work? kind of a big spectrum of what type of symptoms that you get uh, for sleep apnea. Some patients have insomnia and feel like they're just not sleeping through the night very well. Whereas others say, I sleep through the night, I can sleep anywhere, anytime, mm -hmm. no matter what, I sleep, I sleep during the day, and they're just feeling really sleepy. Um, most patients will have at least a symptom of snoring um, at, at, at a minimum. Okay, and how will you treat them? Uh, most patients, they get a CPAP machine or? Uh, that's uh, the best treatment out there. Okay. Um, there are alternatives though, um, but CPAP's the one that's been studied the most, especially as far as surgery. Uh, if you're going to use that before and after surgery to help Is breathing. there any type of mouth guard that can bring the jaw forward and prevent that collapse that works? Yep, or? there is, um, and there's a lot of dentists in the local area who make those. There's American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. Um, do those have a chance of working? They do for mild to moderate sleep apnea. They can work pretty well. It's important if you get one of those to do a sleep test after it's made to make ah, sure it works well. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So you see a lot of patients, obviously, for sleep apnea. And of, of, let's say 100 patients come to see you for it, you get the sleep test, what percent of them have sleep apnea? Is it pretty pretty high when they're getting sent to you that they have sleep apnea? Uh, I'd say it's, it's probably at least 75%. Uh, okay. um, some of them come in with more of an insomnia picture, and that might be a little bit less. But Are they being, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, you, are they being hooked up with electrodes and things like that around the head, or how does that work for a sleep So study? it just depends on uh, kind of what, type of other uh, illnesses that the person has yeah. if they're otherwise pretty healthy we can usually do a home sleep test um, and those there's a bunch of different kits that you could use for those but they're very minimal as far as the amount of sensors that the mm -hmm. patient has to have attached to them they wear it overnight and bring it back the next day um, and we can tell most patients if they have sleep apnea but those who have like significant heart or lung disease in that case, we've got to bring them into the sleep lab, and you do get hooked up to a lot of sensors kind of okay. all over, and we say, go ahead, fall asleep. Yeah. Has <laughs> that ever been an issue? Or like, how can I, it's yep, not, it's not it, normal, you know, to fall asleep in someone else's place or lab where you're being watched yep, and it ha stuff. It, it happens, you know, not a lot, but enough. And I think the, the sleep techs are pretty experienced with helping out through that. They, yeah. they help get them there somehow yeah. eventually. Okay. Um, ultimately, talk about this concept of be a night owl versus an early bird. You, so you kind of hinted that the circadian rhythm is or the cycle is longer than 24 hours. Is there such a thing, though, as some people like to stay up late yep. and sleep late versus some people like to go to bed early and get up early? Is that actually like a, a genetic, like an imprinted thing? It is. Us? There's a little bit of a genetic component to that, for sure. Um, it mostly has to do with when your body starts to produce melatonin. That tells your brain, your body, it, it's time to, uh, to go to sleep. But there are definitely people out there who are more morning people, and there's people out there who are more night people. Um, and I think that's super interesting. I do see it 
fairly often in the sleep clinic. A lot more of the delayed sleep phase where people mm-hmm. like to stay up late than I see of the advanced sleep phase where people like to get up early in the morning. Uh, that also varies a little bit with age, like teenagers much more characteristic to be have a delayed sleep phase, whereas um, you know elderly people more characteristic to have advanced. Right, so you kind of hinted on something here and it kind of, a little off topic, but are we doing our kids a disservice by going to school at seven or eight in the morning? Um, I think the uh, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommendation is high school starts at like eight thirty in really? the morning, and that'll that'll allow most people to because most through, the teenagers through to get young sleep. adulthood they need they tend to sleep later in yep. the morning, and they tend to go to bed later too. Correct. Yep, and it's it's really really difficult to uh, to stop. You got to get off the phone, turn the lights yeah. off, and have why, a very strict sleep. Why schedule. is that? Is that just biology, or does it has cell phone usage and, and gaming and stuff contributed to, to this? It contributes a little bit. If if you're somebody who never has a problem falling asleep or staying asleep, you can probably you know, relatively safely use electronics at night. But for anybody who's you know, trying to get up a lot earlier than they normally would, that light at nighttime is a really, really powerful stimulus to say, stay awake, stay awake, it's still daytime, it'll push you even farther, even later. Is it any light or is it the blue light from the phone that is worse than the, you know, the, the sunset in the evening or something um, like it, that? The blue light's a little bit worse. Okay. Yep. So, and that will keep you more alert, not wanting to go to sleep. Right. Yep. Okay. So people that are on their phone up until the very last second, and then they're like, hey, it takes me an hour to fall asleep. I mean, do you sometimes say, you know, what if we put that phone down an hour yep. earlier? <laughs> I see it in an Iowa nice way, but it works <laughs> out. So. It's, a, yep. it's like they come to their own conclusion, you know, sure. in front of you, and you kind of just lead them down there. And, yep. Okay. Yep. Um, so, so if you're a night owl or an early bird, can you change your hardwiring? Can you become one or the other through habit, um, through routine? You can, but you have to be pretty strict about it in general. Sometimes that will happen naturally. Uh, where like teenagers uh, progress like through their twenties and their thirties, it may they become more of an early bird than a night owl in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, you have to be pretty strict about always get up at around the same time every morning. And there's a whole complex kind of things that we look at to pick really directed interventions for the specific patient because you've got to be careful about when yeah. you get that light in the morning because sometimes you can make things worse uh, depending on when you get that. But it's just a, definitely a really strict sleep-wake schedule is going to be required to change that. Okay. Well, ultimately, I'm guessing routine is makes for better sleep. Yep. Uh, in any case, and as long as it's enough adequate sleep. Sure. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's almost impossible to do the same thing every day, right? It, it's tough. and But most people can adapt really well. Um, but in those people who end up with insomnia or difficulty sleeping, um, then routine is really key. Okay. What about eating before we go to bed? Do you have any thoughts on like uh, how, it, does that affect sleep negatively at all if you have a huge meal? Because sometimes you get tired after sure. you have a big meal, yep. right? Does, is that a good thing just to go to sleep after a big meal or is it does it not matter or how does that affect sleep overall? Well, that's a good question and I don't know if I've looked into that at all yeah. or if there is any research out there on that. Um, when it comes back to kind of sleep about, is about habits that can change things a little bit. Some people always have that, you know, the traditional milk and cookies or something sure. before you go to bed. Yeah. Um, anything that changes the habits will change sleep. Um, but I don't know for sure if, if eating in particular is something that necessarily changes things a lot gotcha um and then a little bit off topic but but in terms of 
like thermoregulation, controlling the temperature of your environment. Is there merit to some of these sleep aids where like your mattress is a certain temperature uh, to start the night and then it changes to be, because we have to be a little bit cooler than our normal body yep. temp during the day yep. to get to sleep and stay asleep. Is that right? It helps. Yep. That's because that's why it's hard to sleep when it, you have no air conditioning in the right. summer. Yeah. Um, is there some merit to those things that do we, that we know of yet? I mean, have you heard any good results from people? Yeah, I, I think there is. Um, it, in general, people sleep better when they're cooler. Their environment is cooler. Um, there's even a device that actually was studied and FDA approved that cools off your forehead to help you sleep. Um, so there's a lot to be said for a very comfortable sleep environment. And in general, a, a cooler sleep environment is, you know, not cold, but mm -hmm. cooler is generally better. Mm -hmm. You know, in the field of orthopedics, everything, a lot of things are starting to go more outpatient. Um, yeah. 20, 30 years ago, an ACL, someone stayed in the hospital for five days, oh. and now they go home the same day. We're, we're now doing, um, at DMOS, outpatient total joints, where patients who are optimized and don't have sleep apnea, don't have all these other risk factors, but can have a surgery same day and go home. I don't know that we anyone studied this, but I guess my thought process would almost be that if they're healthy enough to go home, get back in their routine. Everyone knows you get a little better sleep in your own bed than in a hospital bed. Sure. And when nurses have to check your vitals every four hours or eight hours or whatever, um, you know, I, I think we've started to talk to patients about, hey, the, the value of sleep with recovery and getting back into a routine. And so um, I don't know if that'll ever be studied, but I'd be curious to see if something comes down the line in regards to, you know, if they did 100 joints in the hospital and 100 as an outpatient with the same characteristics, I wonder, yep how they would you know, do overall in terms of coping with pain and recovery, and maybe they do the same, but it'd be a curious, yeah. interesting study to set up. I think that would be super uh, interesting, and in general, sleep that we get in the hospital is, is not great. Um, we don't do it. Before I did 100% sleep medicine like I'm doing now, I also mm -hmm. did some hospital medicine, and we really don't let patients get very good sleep in the hospital with, like you said, checking their vitals and things like that. And we don't know what stage of sleep they're in when we're waking them up, we're interrupting their sleep, uh, particularly that stage three sleep, you get growth hormone, you get a lot of that like, regenerative, restorative sleep from a musculoskeletal standpoint, and really need to get better amounts of that, better quality of that sleep, yeah. and you can do that better at home. Yeah. Leave us with this. Help, give me, give the, the, the audience, you know, a couple things where you know, check out like a, a checklist before you go to sleep every night, or what can you do to improve your sleep hygiene if, if you're struggling sure. with any sort of, you know, regularity of sleep? Yep. And a couple of the big things that I tell a lot of patients, uh, they're kind of generalities, but um, one of the number one things is just have a really good sleep routine, especially the time that you get up in the morning. Even on the weekends when a lot of people want to sleep in, it helps to stay within about an hour of that same time to wake up. Uh, the other thing is that most people do need that seven to nine hours of sleep per night, at least that seven. Um, if you're getting less than that, a lot of times, even though you feel like you're doing okay, you could do a lot better getting up to that seven hours of sleep. Um, and the other thing is just to have a good quality uh, sleep environment. And if you are having any difficulty uh, with sleep, um, to definitely talk with your family doctor about that and, and try to find out if there's anything else that, that you can get done to help your sleep and if you're having snoring or you know potentially apneic episodes seeing someone like you would be the right thing to do right? sure to yep yeah definitely we can do really quick home sleep tests in most cases and uh, find out if the person's got sleep apnea and in the long run that may help health quite yeah. a bit for that's fantastic that. thank yeah. you so much for coming on this is very interesting yeah thank you thanks for having me i really appreciate it. it's been really interesting you got it thank you yeah thanks for listening to joint effort 
a podcast from Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. If you have questions about this podcast and wish to schedule an appointment with the surgeon, call 515-224-1414 or visit dmos.com.